Welcome to a special version of the Houston Healthcare Initiative podcast. My name is Harold Nickel. On this edition, we have a guest, Mr. Gerald Posner. Mr. Posner is an accomplished investigative journalist and the author of a dozen books, including Case Closed, which was a reexamination of the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Mengele, an account of the botched hunt for the Nazi war criminal. His latest work is Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Now, this book describes something we here are all very interested in, which is the history of the pharmaceutical manufacturing industry. I was shocked to read that many of the practices that were incorporated into marketing and selling heroin and cocaine, for God's sakes, in the early 20th century are still used today. And like they did before, the same companies are deliberately downplaying the risk of modern-day medicines like opioids that have led to addiction and death for so many Americans. This, along with an emphasis on profits over patient well-being, are all included in this latest work. And Mr. Posner, welcome. And I knew your name was familiar to me because I read Case Closed and I just thought it was really a compelling volume. Uh, thank you uh, so much, uh, Mr. Nico. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with, uh, you know, on the Houston Healthcare Initiative today. So um, it's great to uh, to have a chance to talk to you, uh, not about JFK assassination, but this time about the pharmaceutical industry. Absolutely. And um, oh, you can call me Harold, by the way. Um, thank you very much. And, uh, Gerald is good for me. All right. Fair enough. Good. Gerald, in your new book, Pharma, Greed, Lies and the Poisoning of America, you trace the history of the drug industry back to the middle of the 19th century up through today. And the thread that seems to run throughout is that regardless of anything else, those companies were really good at persuading the American public that they had the cures to what ailed us and that the price was worth it. Is is that about right? Yeah, I, I think that is um, about right. You know, I was surprised, actually, when I started the, the research, I didn't realize uh, that uh, the the companies that we've come to know, uh, you know, Merck, Squibb, Eli Lilly, uh, the the big major pharmaceutical companies sort of got their start, as you said, in, in the middle of the 19th century, in and around or a little bit afterwards from the Civil War when there was a surge in the demand for morphine. And it was, you know, sort of morphine and addictive products that were the start for them. And they were selling, uh, together with a whole bunch of flimflam people were selling these uh you know, drugs that were supposed cure-alls. Um, it was the wild west of the, the drug industry in the sense, Harold, that, that everything went. There, so there were no prescriptions required. Uh, you could go in if you were 18 years old and, and buy uh, cannabis, cocaine, uh, mixtures with opium. Uh, heroin was a branded name from Bayer, uh, the German pharmaceutical company. For a dollar fifty, you could send in a, a coupon, an order from the Amazon of its day, which was the Sears Roebuck catalog, a hypodermic needle and some pure cocaine. So it, they didn't understand doctors very much about what caused diseases and illnesses. Uh, this was a period in which they were trying to mask them with a lot of uh, heavy uh, drugs that took away pain. And it's that period in which you really get the birth of these early pharmaceutical companies that uh, that grow out of it. And, and uh they continue booming until we outlaw all those narcotics in 1914. Um, and then uh, we go through the sort of experiment on prohibition and alcohols banned. And then the, the drug industry has to find its own way with some new medications. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, 
it was interesting to me that I have asthma and that cocaine was uh, a, a prescribed remedy for that was kind of a surprise. But yeah, um, <laughs> isn't that? I think it was actually the uh, the choice for the Hay Fever Association of America. It was their uh, endorsed product. Um, so you do think to yourself at that when you read the early days of pharma and. You know, there were two German cousins, as you saw in the book, <clears throat> the, both Pfizer brothers who started, you know, Charles Pfizer as a chemical company and then it turned into a pharmaceutical company. Eli Lilly was a union colonel, was Edward Squibb. Um, Burles and Welcome uh, started at this time. They were real individuals. And the interesting part of that part of the drug industry was that the companies were selling directly to us, the patients, the mm -hmm. consumers. Uh, we were buying it. it. It wasn't until 1938 that for the first time, the federal government starts to regulate and says, hey, you need a prescription if you're going to get a, a controlled substance like an opioid or a, you know, uh, anything to do with um, pain medication. And it's not until uh, in the 50s we really start to require prescriptions widely. So in the beginning, these companies are selling to us, telling us that these are cure-alls or they're going to help us, and, and they don't have to prove safety and they don't have to prove that they're effective. Eventually... After World War II, they're going to have to prove to us at least um, that doctors want to write a prescription for them because now they're selling to us indirectly. They're selling to doctors first. They can't get we can't get it unless we get a prescription. So it's an odd business in that sense. It, odd indeed. And even with those restrictions of having to have a written prescription from a doctor, we're a medicated society and either have or want a pill for just about everything. Our collective Reliance on pills, though, it, it's not a coincidence, is it? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a yeah, uh, look at it's a for profit business, and I don't have any uh, problem with that. But the reason that it comes to a crunch sometimes is it intersects with health, and uh, therefore we don't always like, you know, somebody's overcharging us for a set of tires. That's one thing. If they're, if they're gouging us on a, a medication that's necessary, it tends to get people a little bit angrier. And certainly in, in the case of the pharmaceutical business, what they've done over time is done a very good job of marketing the, the pills and the treatments as being not only the most effective choices, but the easiest. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if um, my wife, Tricia, uh, wrote a book years ago called uh, No Hormones, No Fear, it was about she has a lot of breast cancer in her family. So when she went through menopause, she wasn't able to go on a hormone replacement therapy because it increased the risk of breast cancer. She had to go through a, a series of natural remedies, including some herbs and that that helped reduce hot flashes. It was a much more arduous process, including exercise and all. How much more tempting is it for someone to say, I'm just going to take one pill a day. I'll go and get the HRT from my doctor. I'll fill that prescription every month. I don't have to do all the rest of it. So they're selling us something that seems easier, but there's always a trade-off for that. And, and I think that's what many people are unaware of at times. Yeah, I think that's so well said that um, there is a trade-off. And you're right that there is a tremendous temptation to just, well, I can take vitamins and, and go jogging or... I can I can take one of these and have a seat. So um, right. that's that's a big big problem for the American public. But let's let's talk about the pharmaceutical industry in general and a statement you attributed to health experts that big pharmaceutical companies are a major speed bump in developing life saving vaccines. I think just about everybody is looking forward to and hopeful about a vaccine for the coronavirus COVID-19 virus. And, you know, frankly, the thought that the people we rely on to do this may delay 
delivery is disconcerting to say the least. Um, how can that be? Yeah, no, you you ask a great question, and you, I I don't just it's not speculation on my part. It's I base it upon what we had as our history with the drug industry here in America. The last time we tried to roll out a national vaccination program for what they feared would be a pandemic, the swine flu, was in 1976. For those listeners uh, who are old enough to remember Gerald Ford as president, uh, and 40 million people were inoculated before they canceled it finally. But the four drug companies that made the, that vaccination, when the government said we're ready to to start to to give it to the public, they refused to turn it over until they were guaranteed what they called a reasonable profit and full indemnity for any adverse effects or side effects that came from the vaccine that was about to be given. Now, they were in the driver's seat because they they made those demands at the very end, so the government caved into them. And the, the question here is, there are two things that the drug industry has been asking for from the start on COVID. Uh, the initial $3 billion the government gave to them in March to start the vaccine research, uh, there were initially two provisions in that $3 billion grant. One was that all the research the drug industry did would be shared, so nobody would own the rights to it. And the second part was if the price was too high, the federal government would have some tools to try to bring it down. Both of those got knocked out of the final grant. So the $3 billion went without any strings attached. And I think that the drug companies could have been a speed bump, as I called it, on the Roto vaccine if they weren't getting the indemnity from any civil liability and lawsuits and if they weren't getting a fair profit. But those issues have been sort of shunted aside. Uh, we, the federal government, uh, American people are funding the research. Uh, the federal government has signed some early contracts for vaccines if they're successful with Pfizer and others. There's a multi-billion dollar sale in each of those. So I think that they will be producing these and they'll be producing them as fast as possible because they see it as a big boost to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the swine flu and um, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but that vaccine was harmful and even killed some people, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, no, you are remembering right. It's very interesting that, you know, the federal government had done testing on it and they had a long list of what they thought were possible side effects. And so everybody who dispensed it and then patients who went to get it had to scribble off and sign their initials to this waiver of all of these side effects. What was missing, uh, Harold, from the side effect sheet was neurological uh, conditions because what they didn't expect, and sometimes you don't know what happens until you give it to millions of people, was a, a rare neurological disorder, Guillain-Barre, mm -hmm. which, uh, which affected about 4,000 people. Now, 40 million people inoculated, 4,000 people come down with this. And even though it's a small number, if you're one of those who gets it, it doesn't matter. And so you understand, you know, that's the nature of vaccines is they can be safe through all the clinical trials. Just the other day, as a matter of fact, for those who have been following the news, AstraZeneca and Oxford's vaccine, which was one of those highly touted, um, the, one of the front runners uh, is in phase three clinical trials, which is the last big trial. And they've had one adverse reaction that is considered serious. We don't know if it was a fatality or not, but serious enough for them to stop the clinical trials where they are. So, you know, this is the nature of uh, vaccines. You have to make sure that they're going to do, they will be useful. They're going to help us end COVID at some point, but we want to make sure the ones that get out there are the safe ones. Yeah, that's right. And you had mentioned that those uh, contracts for that vaccine were in the billions of dollars. And it kind of brings me to the way that drug companies get paid and they get paid lots of money. 
by knowing the rules of a highly regulated business and using those same rules as tools to increase their profits. And I'm like you, I'm look, making money is, is fine. Um, and we'll get to more of that here in a bit. But Dr. Goldstein has talked before about how things like surprise medical bills are possible, even for people who are fully insured. And when it comes to prescription medicine, there's another mechanism, mechanism, sorry, that you write about called the pharmacy benefit manager or the PBM. Who are, who are these guys? And is there any way that the average person can work themselves around them? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. So PBMs are, were one of the mysteries of the drug business when I started. And what they really are is they're sort of what anybody who's listening who has a small company, uh, you might use a payroll processing service. You know, you've got three or four employees. Uh, you may do your own payroll or you might hire a company uh, like Quicken or somebody that does it for $20 a month and automates it and makes it easy to take out payroll taxes and whatever and cuts checks. Uh, these companies started that way in the 80s. They they were small companies that went to the, the large pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and said, hey, we can help process the insurance claims for drugs. And so they just were literally moving the paper. Well, over time, they got to be very powerful. And they're among the largest companies in America now. Caremark is, uh, is, is owned by CBS. Um, the, uh, a number of them uh, you'll see on the top 50 companies. They got powerful by saying, we can also control the formulary, the list for private insurers that cover drugs. So everybody, you know, has private insurance. Uh, if you have drug insurance, you'll know that sometimes uh, you check your drug and it's covered as a uh, as a basic number one and it's easy and you pay the least amount for it. Sometimes it's number two or three or number four on the formulary, which is the most expensive. And sometimes it's not on the formulary at all. But the people that make those choices aren't doctors and aren't medical experts, but they're these pharmacy benefit managers who put themselves in between the drug companies, the insurance companies, and you, the consumer, the patient. They take rebates from the drug companies sometimes to put their product on the formulary. So they aren't necessarily putting the lowest price drug or the best drug there. They're putting the one that they make the most profit from. And one of the ways that you might be able to protect yourself as a consumer is when you go to a pharmacy to fill a prescription that's been written for you, there's a thing called a gag rule. The Trump administration is trying to get rid of it. Uh, it's Some states have tried to and have gotten rid of it in about 12 states, but it's still in effect in most. And the gag rule is this. You go in, you have an insurance policy. Your copay is $40, let's say, on the drug that you're filling. So you go ahead and pay that. You figure that's uh, okay. That's what my copay is. The, the pharmacist sees on their computer that if you came in as a cash patient and said, I want the same drug, it might only be $18. And I know that's it's hard to imagine that the cash price for a drug would be less than what the copay is, but that's because the pharmacy benefit managers have built in their rebates and all. The actual insurance price is higher by a fair amount than what the cash price is. But the pharmacist is gagged from telling you that, not allowed to say to you, oh, and by the way, Harold, if you pay cash, you can save more than 50% on this drug. They have to be silent unless you ask. So my advice is, if you want to try to beat the pharmacy benefit managers, you go in to fill a prescription, whether it's on Medicare and you have a plan D, or whether it's a private insurance and you're under 65, be sure to ask the pharmacist, is the cash price better than what my insurance plan is? You might be surprised occasionally and save some money. That's that's unbelievable. Um, Dr. Goldstein is a huge proponent of the cash um, pricing models and on his website at HoustonHealthcareInitiative.com or .org, sorry, um, 
there's a list of physicians in the greater Houston area who take cash and give you a better price. And that's kind of what gets me what we talked about a minute ago about, about profit and, hey, I don't work for free. I don't know anybody that does. That's fine to make money. But if you're going to game a system the way you just described that was designed for the the public's good, that seems like that's just something else again, isn't it? Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it's part of what you see. I mean, look, at there's no doubt that in the in the drug industry, there's some very well-intentioned uh, researchers and scientists inside the labs working on on drugs that they think will be treatments for cancers or heart disease or congestive heart failure or Alzheimer's that working on the and and their and their hearts in the right place. And then what happens, it's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde situation, a split personality in the drug industry. It leaves the lab and it's taken by the marketing and promotion people. And they sort of decide to sell it with Madison Avenue techniques. And that's a hard sell. Uh, and, and that's where it seems to me there's often a disconnect. One of the things that's interesting is, and you see this play out over the history of the business, so that in the 1950s, you know, penicillin was the wonder drug, and it is a wonder drug that came out in World War II from this big, massive government effort. Then in the 1950s, uh, all the companies are looking for their own branded uh, version of an antibiotic that they could sell and get exclusive profits from. We give them a 17-year patent if they can get one. And this is where the drug industry really changes to what I call these so-called Me Too drugs. There was one instance in which Pfizer uh, was desperate to get its own antibiotic that it owned, and a competitor, uh, Letterlay, had a drug called Aramycin, which was selling very, very well. Pfizer in its lab was able to make a, a competitor called Teramycin. It was one atom of difference, Harold, from its competitor's drug. It made no difference in the efficacy made no difference in the way that it was dispensed. They went before the FDA and eventually went to court and it was held that that was a significant enough difference to have your own patent on it. And as a result, we have been flooded in the pharmaceutical industry between mild tranquilizers, between uh, heart pills, between all types of medications with what I call knockoffs, Me Too drugs. The only benefit to the Me Too drug is that it gives a drug company an ability to charge a higher price, but it's not necessarily better for the consumer. That's a bit of gaming in the system. And that's uh, done with a lot of different types of medications. I take a couple of Me Too's and the difference in them versus the generic other than the price is um, time release as a component. And um, the time release uh, really hits me in the, in the pocketbook. And, you know, we rely on our elected officials and the government to protect us from things like this. So I kind of want to shift gears and talk a little bit about lobbying and, of course, lobbying by the, the pharmaceutical in industry. Um, lately on the podcast, we've been talking with Dr. Goldstein about the need for a lot of reform in the medical industry regarding how we all pay for our treatment. And the question I asked you on, on email was about the return on investment or the ROI the pharmaceutical industry realizes from its lobbying of the of the Congress, I couldn't find a figure for it. Um, it either, if it's known, it's not published. But if it's, is it fair to conclude that um, for the money that the pharmaceutical industry spends on lobbying, they're they're getting their money's worth? Absolutely, um, and you're right. It is hard. You don't find that figure because 
is is dispersed among uh, you know several dozen big players. The top ten pharmaceutical companies of the world are doing uh, nearly uh, you know eight hundred million trillion dollars almost a year in business gross sales. The so you'd have to you you try to follow each of them in terms of their own uh, lobbying and they have their own efforts. And then of course there's a there's a re- there's a marketing group called Pharma P H R M A which also lobbies Congress and politicians. They don't need to own the politicians. They just need to wield enough influence on Capitol Hill to make a difference on on laws, and they do that effectively. You know, people will sometimes ask me, "Is who's to blame? Is it Republicans or Democrats?" And I say, "Well, what decade do you want to choose? Some decades, as you know in the book, Republicans are to blame, and some decades in the book, Democrats are to blame. This is an equal opportunity book. The pharma is is smart enough to know." that power changes in Washington. And if they put all their eggs in one basket, they're going to be in trouble when the other party gets in. So as a result, they cultivate uh, sort of those cozy relationships uh, with leaders of both parties, and they're able to make sure that you know legislation that really would clamp down on them doesn't get through. Uh, and, and even at times, reforms don't get done. So it's, it's a very difficult process because the, the rate of return is difficult to measure, but I can assure you that for the tens of millions of dollars spent in lobbying, the return can be measured in the hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of sales and or profits. Yeah, that's a good word. It's um, it's not for nothing that they spend that kind of money. And um, what little I know about it is that betting on both sides is uh, it, it's not a bet that they're going to lose ever. Um now, let's talk a little bit about something we might want to reconsider here in the U.S., and that's the advertising of prescription medicine. The U.S. and New Zealand, those are the only two countries on the planet that allow prescription medicine to be advertised. And Dr. Goldstein believes that, that this is something that just should be outlawed. There's a couple of ways to look at it. Um, on the one hand, paid ads educate the public about what's available to them. Um, and just like they say at the end of every one of those ads, ask your doctor. On the other hand, ads by their very nature, they're marketing tools and they are used to create demand. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, I think Dr. Goldstein's exactly right. Uh, the, ever since 1997, when, uh, the FDA allowed direct to consumer ads, uh, I think it's been, uh, an unmitigated disaster from the perspective of the public and patients, but a fantastic device from the perspective of the drug companies. Look, the uh, it was really in the late 1950s uh, with the drug we mentioned a moment ago from Pfizer, teramycin, when a fellow called Arthur Sackler, that name Sackler might ring a bell to some of your mm-hmm. listeners because it's the family that owns Purdue Pharma, whose uh, brand OxyContin is sort of the poster child at the center of the opioid epidemic. But the senior member of the Sackler family, who was himself a psychiatrist, his two brothers were as well, sort of invented the more aggressive marketing to doctors, which was, you know, full four-color ads, uh, big spreads, uh, Madison Avenue style, free samples to them, free gifts, uh, speakers, bureaus, all of that. But then, in, and he always believed that you should try to influence the consumer because you wanted not only to create demand among the doctors that you were advertising to as a drug company, but you wanted patients to go into their doctor and say, hey, what about this great new heart uh, cholesterol-lowering medication I heard about? What about this drug? Put the pressure on the doctors from the patients. And what better way to do that than direct-to-consumer advertising? So those ads that bombard us, you're right, if it was just about informing us about the benefits of medications would be one thing, but it creates sort of an, a... 
an underlying demand that patients then go to the doctors and ask for it. And one of the things so interesting on this, Harold, and Dr. Goldstein probably knows this as well, it's not as though that money is it comes off the printing press. It comes from other things that the drug company should be doing. So you know, the drug companies often say to us that they need very high prices because that's how they fund their research and development. And we are, as you said, one of two countries in the world that allow direct-to-consumer ads. Well, we're the only country in the world that allowed drug companies unfettered power to set their own prices. And they set them always higher in the U.S. by anywhere from three to six times higher than they do for the very same drug in another country. And they say, we need that for our, our research. But if you take the top 10 companies for the past decade, their promotion and marketing and their stock buybacks are more than what they spend on research and development. So, you know, if we didn't have direct consumer ads, maybe they could put a little bit more toward research and development. It might be a little better off and have lower prices. Yeah, isn't that the truth? And that technique is called pull-through marketing, where you create a, a demand for something and then people go looking for it. But it's, depending on your point of view, even worse or better than that, because the drug companies also promote medicine directly to physicians. And you'll have a sales rep from a pharma company that has contests for how much they can sell of a certain drug in a certain uh, territory. And they're going to want a car or money or a trip for exceeding their, their sales goals. I know of a doctor who gets to take some really nice trips with their spouse to speak at conferences. But the attendees at all these so-called conferences are pharmaceutical company employees. And it's mm. always in Las Vegas or Hawaii or, you know, some other nice place. Is that really a good way to educate physicians about, you know, what the public um, may be needing from them? No, I mean, it, it, it clearly isn't. I mean, it, it, I mean, you're not getting the, the, the most, what I call, you know, um, uh, straightforward and objective view necessarily by whining and dining uh, physicians to convince them that your product is the best. But there's a problem in, in, in the drug business, and that is that uh, doctors who are running their own practices in particular and have a lot of things to deal with, from overhead to insurance to all the matters of you know personnel working for them and that, they have trouble keeping up with the newest and latest developments on each and every drug that comes out. Uh, general practitioners, primary care doctors in particular, may have a specialty, but they'll be asked about the, from their patients about everything from antidepressants to cholesterol medication. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's an overwhelming amount of information, drug companies to some degree, but actually take advantage of that confusion um, in order to make sure that their sales reps can say to physicians, look, don't you don't have to keep up with the research on, for instance, cholesterol medications. We're going to tell you why this one we have here from Pfizer is simply the best, and you don't have to go anywhere else. And I think a lot of doctors are overwhelmed. They'll sometimes just go along with that rep that they happen to personally like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, it, it, a, a lot of selling in general gets down to I'm going to buy from somebody that I like, as you just as you just said. Um, and they don't always buy on price. It can get to be something that well, you know, I really enjoy spending time with sales mm -hmm. rep A and not sales rep B. So. It, it, you know, Harold, very interesting that one of the things that um, that Arthur Sackler did with uh, Pfizer when he rolled out the first detail team, uh, you know, at that time they were all men, but the men and women that go off to doctors to try to make the sales, is he said um, in this manual, try to learn a little bit about the doctors you're meeting with, a little personal information about their wives, if they have children, whatever else. 
make a personal connection with them because that will make it easier. You won't just be a salesperson then. You'll be somebody who's a friend who's stopping in with this good advice about drugs. And it's and it's very interesting that in the opioid crisis, for instance, some of the top salespeople, let's say at Purdue, um, who were getting the bonuses and, and, and doubling their salary in terms of bonuses, when their sales started to slow up a little bit in 2016 and 17 and other opioids were picking up, they moved over to other companies because if you can sell a drug, you don't have to sell it for just one company. You're either good at sales or not, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And there's a lateral movement among the salespeople, which is interesting. If somebody's a star salesperson at Pfizer, they may not stay at Pfizer. They may end up at it's selling a completely different drug at Johnson & Johnson. It's their ability to convince a doctor that that drug is good no matter what it is. Just generally speaking, a person who's a good salesperson in general will never miss a meal. They're, they're always yeah, in demand. Right. That's um, right. So let's shift gears and talk about the the drug industry's role in treating the coronavirus. Um, and I got, I'm sorry, but this is really a long question. Um, so thanks for being patient. I think we're potentially getting fooled over a couple of possible treatments for the coronavirus pandemic that are inexpensive versus one that's anything but inexpensive. And one of the cheap ones is a drug that's been used to treat malaria and lupus, and it's called hydroxychloroquine. And the other inexpensive treatment is the use of blood plasma. Um, it's a product that's taken from people who are recovered from the virus, and that method of treating disease goes back to the early 20th century. Now, the expensive treatment is called remdesivir that was originally designed to treat Ebola. Um, it didn't work out as a treatment for Ebola, is made by Gilead. Remdesivir is priced at like around $3,500 for treating a case of COVID-19. Um, and from what I've read, the outcomes researched about any of those treatments are, are a push. They're kind of a tie. Um, so are we seeing some of that ROI we talked about for lobbying at work here, or is there something else no i think you know i'm always suspicious as a as a journalist and investigator when by chance let's assume it's by chance just the way things work out a good bit of serendipity that the best product is the most expensive product and the only one that returns a profit to drug companies so you know uh, gilead is very interesting because with remdesivir they actually tried early on i was one of the critics for this in the in the in the pandemic in the early days of covid uh, they tried to get a status for this that is called an orphan drug. You know, you know, I have a chapter called Billion Dollar Orphans, mm -hmm. and it's a and it's a, a law designed in the 1980s to help give some incentive to drug companies to uh, sort of spend the time to make drugs for rare genetic diseases that afflict only a small patient population. Well, if it's under 200,000 people, the drug might qualify. And Gilead knew that remdesivir was eventually, if it gets approved for treating COVID, going to apply to millions of people. But if they got their application in early enough, that would mean they would get tax incentive, tax credits, extra subsidies from the taxpayer, an extended um, a patent for protection to sell it exclusively. They had to withdraw that because there was enough protest about how they were trying to game the system. But there's a lot of money in remdesivir. And when you said before it's being priced at about $3,300 for that dosage, that's in the U.S. They have had the the what I call the nerve, if you will, or the, the, no shame to price it at about a third higher in the U.S. And they priced it abroad because that's the old status that we should pay more in the U.S. 
And you're right about things like hydroxychloroquine. I think the, the jury is out on that. And one of the reasons I say that is this is a, a key point for your listeners to remember. Uh, and that is in June of this year, uh, the a- online medical journal Lancet, which is the premier medical journal in the UK, had already run a story in May that said, by the way, hydroxychloroquine is dangerous. Um, it doesn't help curb COVID-19. It might cause death in patients. And guess what they had to do in June? They actually had to apologize to Reader and retract the study because it turns out that the data was wrong on it. So somebody was trying to get an article in Lancet uh, so that other doctors and everybody in the medical community would say, wow, hydroxychloroquine, that's a bad drug. Not only doesn't it work, but it's dangerous. They had to retract that, but the damage was already done. So I'd love to still know how that got done. There's an investigation still to do. Um, and we will know eventually a year or two when looking in the rearview mirror on COVID um, if this was gained or not. But uh, I'm suspicious about some of these uh, early studies. Yeah, I'm, I'm like you. And uh, we had covered that uh, that incident with uh, Lancet and uh, I think it was New England Journal. Right. Um, that both ended up having to retract those stories. But like you say, the damage is done. That's a technique called well poisoning in the mm-hmm. communications business. And it's, uh, as you say, the damage was done and all the money for those or well, for hydroxychloroquine specifically was gone after that. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not somebody who believes in a lot of coincidences. I'll be interested to see how that works out. Right. So we've talked a lot about the pharmaceutical industry and the things that you've learned about and published in your book. Is there any way, any possibility that our system can be reformed or is it just too broke to fix? Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, I, I, I do think reforms are possible and there isn't a simple fix. There's not one lever that you push and that's going to make it all better. So, you know, when I hear uh, sometimes, uh, politicians will say, oh, we're, we're going to make it all uh, government run or we're going to make it uh, Medicare for all or whatever else. That's a different way of delivering medicine, but it's not a fix for what the drug industry is doing. And the, the, the part of the benefit the drug industry has is that it's complex. And so therefore, it's not easy to just find that one simple fix. But for instance, let's say on orphan drugs right now, I think the seven or eight of the top 10 most expensive drugs in the world are orphan drugs. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, one of the things that can be done is some of the loopholes that are being used by drug companies to abuse that law could be very easily closed with a little bit of work on Congress. So you shouldn't be able to take a drug, I believe, that got a designation for a rare genetic disorder like um, Allergan's Botox, which was really for uh, sort of tremors in the eye, and then later be able to use it for a mass market drug like they did to correct uh, crow's feet or facial wrinkles and earn billions of dollars from it and not have to give some of the extra subsidies and tax credits that you got from the government in the first place back to the taxpayer. That happens all the time. You shouldn't be able to get two, three, or four different designations for orphan drugs by cutting the market smaller every time. So you say, well, now we have a drug for very, very high cholesterol, and we're going to cut it just for children. We're going to cut it just for women. They do this repeatedly. So there are some abuses that can be rolled up, and they affect some of the most expensive drugs. In addition, I think the PBMs, you want a simple fix on pharmacy benefit managers, make the rebates transparent. Mm -hmm. Right now, the rebates from pharmaceutical companies to PBMs are secret. They shouldn't be. They're not illegal. So let's see what they are. Let's see if Johnson Johnson, Pfizer, Wellcome, whoever else, 
if they're giving a thousand dollar for every prescription that's given on a migraine medication that's costing twelve hundred dollars when you go to the pharmacy if so i guarantee you those will disappear pretty fast so i don't have unfortunately harold what i call an overall fix because hey that's it that's what i want my senator or congressperson to go ahead and, and push for but there are plenty of little things that could be done that could slow up this rapidly increasing price uh, escalation and often gouging that's taking place, but it's just not happening. Well, it's, um, it's, it's uh, a, a big puzzle. And the, the more I learn about this as a layperson, um, the more I think that something really needs to be done. And what you described about the PBMs and the uh, patent system, just those two would save the average person piles of money. Yeah. The, um, and, you know, it's very interesting because there is the, there's an incentive to do this in the sense that um, everybody seems to complain about high drug prices, mm-hmm. but then nothing actually gets done about them. And uh, there's even a point at which in the early 1960s, uh, the, the U.S. Senate was looking at regulating the industry. One of the things they looked into was whether a company that had an exclusive patent should have to license its product to all comers at a certain uh, amount of money after three or four years. So, you know, make the still let you earn the money on it, but not mean that for 17 years you get to control the exclusive access to it. You know, those would be tougher to get through Congress without any doubt. But the uh, it seems to me that to the extent that we allow ourselves in the U.S. to uh, say to drug companies, you can set whatever price you want. Uh, we're asking to be the ones who are overcharged, and that's unfortunate. You know, the, the companies set their profit margins, what they want on a specific drug. Then they negotiate the prices first with the European countries and in Asian countries. They set their price in America almost always as the last price because they'll make that adjustment depending on what they first negotiate in the other countries. I don't know why we happen to be the suckers on this. <laughs> suckers, indeed. Um, that's, uh, that's a very... Um Pointed and accurate description. Just we're just suckers. Um, but let me ask you, with the time we've got left, where can our listeners get your get your book? Well, you know, I, um, I used to say at uh, everywhere uh, every bookstore where fine books are sold. I couldn't <clears> say that <throat> for the first four months of uh, publication because bookstores were closed. Uh, certainly available online as well, from uh, from Kindle uh, to to iBooks to to Kobo to Nook. Um, so it is available uh, everywhere. Okay, and we'll uh, we'll post links for uh, for Pharma Greed Lies and the Poisoning of America on the on the Houston Healthcare Initiative website and on our social media. Are you going to be doing any other interviews or virtual appearances anytime soon? Um, yes, I will. I, as a matter of fact, I post them on my uh, website. I have one possibly coming up uh, later this month. I'm still waiting to hear the final details. Uh, for, uh, that might be in uh, South Texas, uh, the, and I'll uh, let you know if that happens. But I post them on the website, which is just my last name, Posner, P-O-S-N-E-R.com. Uh, if somebody goes there and they click on the pharma cover, they'll get to a page that sort of gives you the latest of uh, what's up next in a virtual appearance. That's, that's so cool. And if uh, the appearance is in South Texas, well, we're close to that. We're just uh, a little south of, of Houston, Texas. Hey, Dr. Goldstein, I really want to thank you, uh, Gerald Posner, for taking time. His book is Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. 
of America. Um, I'm a very slow reader, but what I've read so far, it's like a, it's like a true crime novel, but it's all true. The crimes are real. Um, it is a page turner. It ought to be compulsory reading for anybody who's involved in the healthcare industry. And like I say, we're going to include links for, uh, Gerald's site and, um, the places where you can order his book online on our website and on the Facebook page. Hey, as always, thanks for listening. Tell your friends about us and come back next time for another edition of the Houston Healthcare Initiative podcast.